A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to the Lizal Wellbeing show and today I am joined by Dr Andrew Jenkinson a consultant bariatric surgeon at University College London Hospital he specializes in weight loss and diet and has been performing bariatric surgery for 16 years or more treating over 3000 patients in this time well in listening to his patients patients he describes as normal people who have suffered with their weight for years he found that what they said did not fit with his own understanding of obesity so he set out to close this gap between what scientists doctors and dietitians tell us about obesity and how to deal with it and what obese people actually experienced well if the scientists are right and it's simple to lose weight by dieting and exercise and if the benefits of that weight loss are so great in terms of happiness confidence health and finances andrew asked then why can't people achieve it why can't people sustain weight loss how could weight loss through dieting be so difficult that people have to resort to such extreme measures as stomach removal or bypassing surgery well he is here on the show with me to answer all these questions and more oh my goodness we have had the most fascinating chat about metabolism set points weight loss myths including a big chat about saturated fat i can't wait to share that one with you and his advice for those who have spent years dieting without any luck so without further ado let's get right into today's show andrew welcome to my podcast thank you for finding the time i am so looking forward to this conversation i can't tell you it's a pleasure liz thanks for having me Well, let us start by talking a little bit about your background and really uh, a kind of a deep dive into bariatric surgery. What what exactly it is and what what do you do in the operating theatre? So I'm a bariatric surgeon, which means I do operations uh, to help people lose weight. Um, probably been a consultant now for 16 years. Um, at first at the Hamilton Hospital in Hackney, London, and then at UCLH in the last 10 years. um and bariatric surgery is it's a type of surgery where you either remove or bypass someone's stomach uh in order to you know help them to sort of reset their weight from a very high level because they're suffering with you know severe obesity to a more normal weight so you're basically so. stopping food from going into the stomach is that right so so you can't actually then put on any weight 
Yeah, so it has two effects. One is the mechanical effect of either bypassing the stomach and you know just making it much more, making the stomach much smaller. So mechanically, you literally cannot eat very fast, um, and that traditionally was the way that we thought it worked. But now it's becoming much more apparent that by changing the anatomy of the stomach, so bypassing it or making it smaller, if we actually change the hormones going from your stomach and your small bowel to the hypothalamus in your brain, which actually controls a lot of where your weight's going to be. So it controls your appetite, controls your satiety. That's fascinating. Gosh, so it's not just the, you know, the physical you know, blocking or, or preventing of, of the food going into the stomach, but it, it's, it's preventing the release of these hormones that are telling our brain that we're not hungry. Yeah, this is why the sort of older bariatric operation, the gastric band, which is basically a sort of plastic ring with an inner tube that you could inflate and make it sort of tighter and tighter. So as you eat, it gets sort of, sort of more and more difficult to eat. We know that that, you know, that produces a bit of weight loss at first because obviously you can't get your money's worth an all-inclusive buffet. Um, but it doesn't stop those signals. You know, you lose a bit of weight, but then as all dieters know, you get a signal to, you know, to eat and you get a signal to eat high calorie foods. And these are all you know, signals coming from stomach hormones. There's a hormone called ghrelin, which go to the hypothalamus and just give you this sort of voracious food seeking behavior, which can be, you know, they're strong hormones. It can be like a voracious or a parching thirst. Um, so we know that the gastric band, this sort of literally mechanical device sitting at the top of your stomach, almost is almost like having your jaw wired. It sort of works short term, but in the long term, people feel driven to have high calorie foods, chocolate, crisps, ice cream that will go through the band. And then they'll blame, oh my. Think, they'll blame themselves and think, you know, it's just my willpower, doctor. But actually, yeah. if you understand exactly how the body is working, it's just the normal, normal body's reaction to a gastric band. Whereas the newer operations profoundly change these, these hormones. And there's three really important hormones. One is called ghrelin, which comes from the stomach, and that causes a voracious appetite. And the other two, PYY and GLP-1, come from the small bowel. As food goes into the small bowel, it's released, and it sort of tells your body to stop eating, tells your brain to stop eating. So that's the appetite break. So with these operations, those appetite breaks are on, that switch is on, and the appetite you know, driver is off. So um, you're losing weight because your stomach is small, but you don't get this rebound appetite. So it just seems very, very easy. So how does surgery control the release of hormones? I mean, you, this is sounding more like a sort of endocrinology issue that you might want to have a hormone blocker, perhaps, that doesn't involve surgery. Yes, yeah, so there are hormone blockers sort of coming along the line that are mimicking um, the effects of bariatric surgery, as we sort of mentioned in, in our little discussion before before this podcast. Um, the appetite hormone ghrelin comes directly from the body of the stomach, and that's literally removed um, for the, you know, the sleeve gastrectomy operation. So there is a profound drop in ghrelin and the appetite is switched off. Um, and it's really, it's really strange because we do the operations by keyhole or laparoscopic surgery. So people have small little cuts, we put a little camera in and they literally go home the next day um, with minimal pain. And they say to me sometimes, um, was it, was it 
your was it my brain that you operated on rather than my stomach because I just don't feel hungry anymore. Um, so yeah, there are profound changes to the way your brain perceives food, including actually changes in in not just appetite but taste. People think that you know sweet or sugary food seems to taste sweeter or more sugary, and processed food just tastes a bit horrible. So they literally have a craving for salads. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Oh my goodness! It's you just think, you know, is this something that we should all be queuing up for? Is, is it? A, I mean, you say, you know, it's a keyhole operation. It, it sounds relatively straightforward. I mean, is it something safe and easy that we should all be hopping down to our local hospital to to book in for? <laughs> you know, what 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 what's the downside of, of having your appetite switched off? Well, obviously, these operations are relatively safe, but there are, you know, um, you're, you're removing the stomach. There's big blood vessels around. Um, you can get complications like bleeding or, or leakage from where you staple the stomach. So they can be, you know, quite rare, but significant complications. So we have guidelines that, you know, the benefits of the operation should exceed the risks. So if someone only needs to lose yeah. one or two stone, you know, those benefits aren't as profound, aren't as large as the risk. So yeah, we can sort of only operate on people with a body mass index of 35 or over. So realistically, that means right. sort of 16 stone for someone average female height. Uh, I mean, it, w- it was a slightly um, tongue-in-cheek question that I <laughs> You wouldn't be the first person to come who's almost normal weight. <laughs> in, some parts of, in some parts of the world, it's um, actually pretty normal to operate on people just slightly overweight, um, but not in England, not in the, the West. Is it really? Yeah. Good heavens. That Wow, that is, uh, yeah, that is something extraordinary. And presumably these surgeries do turn patients' lives around. Totally. So, I mean, the average patient has been struggling, you know, for their whole life. Maybe they were, you know, say 10 or 12 as a, as a child or adolescent and then started dieting. The book sort of tells us about, you know, the dangers of dieting, how it sort of trains your body or trains your metabolism to become really hyper-efficient. And every single diet is more more difficult as you go along. And then you get to a threshold of obesity. Again, the book explains this, and we may go into it later, where leptin resistance, this real hormonal disruption of your appetite regulation and, you know, just the regulation of your weight becomes disrupted. and then you're in you're in real trouble. And then uh, it doesn't matter what you do and you know what calorie con- counting diet you go on. Over the longer term, you're sort of stuck in that that really high weight set point. Uh, and when you do these operations, mm-hmm. people who have been dieting for years and decades just feel you know totally released. So you know, an average patient, maybe sixteen or eighteen stone, they'll go down to maybe eleven stone, ten or eleven stone, and not feel a dieter will will know where their weight set point is so where their body wants them to go back to and a lot of people it is quite high they're like they're running away from that weight set point in the gym or they're starving their their way away from it but once you've had the operation you go down towards a more normal weight and you just get this feeling that you're not that that is your normal weight that is your new your new setting that your body and your hypothalamus are are happy with so it's not a constant struggle 
So let's talk about that then. So you you talk in the book about this set point. And I think there are many people listening who will have been on a dieting journey and will have lost some weight that they want to lose, but then it comes back on and their body seems to be at this this point, this this magic number that it doesn't really want to vary from. Um, do we all have our own set point, which is the weight that we're meant to be? And actually, it's a bit of a losing battle to try and be anything less than that weight, because that is where we're set. Yeah, so the weight set point theory has been sort of in circulation in scientific circles for uh, many years. And it's based on observations, um, animal experiments, uh, where they have taken rodents, so mice or rats, um, and either artificially overfed them or artificially starve them uh, and sort of put them into three groups. So one overfeeding, one normal uh, normal diet and one starving for a period of time saw that, you know, the overfeeding ones put on weight, the underfeeding ones lost weight. But then when they, you know, let them all feed normally again, they all went back towards where they where where their non-dieting or overfeeding sort of group were. So everyone, all the rodents went back towards their own weight setting. It didn't. It didn't happen. If they'd been overfed, they stayed fat, and if they'd been starved, they stayed slim. Once they're allowed to just refeed, they 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 didn't refeed and sort of you know rebound up to a massively high level. They refed until they got to this weight setting. So there's a lot of evidence in sort of animal experiments. And then when you look in you know, what is actually happening in real life with patients, and this is what I observed in my clinic for many many years, everyone has this same story. Yeah. Yes, Dr. Jenkinson, I can lose weight on a diet, but I always put it on until uh, I get back to where I was before the diet. And actually quite often they say they get back and then they put a little bit more on. So it's like you lose weight, put it on and more. This is really, really typical of almost every single patient who's you know, come to my clinic and probably resonates with most dieters. And so you sort of think, well, maybe those sort of animal experiments uh, are telling us something about, you know, what happens in humans. And the, the the book expands on this theory, and it really does totally explain our weight regulation system. And basically, it sort of uh, sort of unpicks where your weight setting is individually and why it is there. And basically dependent on genetic aspects. So where your, whether your family or members of your ancestors suffered with obesity um, your env- and your environment. So whether you're in a, a Western food environment with lots of processed foods or, you, or, or if you're in a food environment where there's a lot of fresh and local foods. So those two things, so genetics and environment in collaboration together will uh, determine your weight setting. And there's a third aspect called epigenetics, which is a little bit of a mix of genes and and environment, which is just a fascinating new area of uh, of research in you know the whole of you know human disease as well. Yes. So, is there any point really in fighting against our set point? I mean, I know for me, I can get to a certain weight, and if I want to go below that, it's a real struggle, and then inevitably, I do actually swing back you know, to, to what I now perceive to be my set point? You know, is there any point in me struggling to get below that? I think if, 
I think if people understand that there is a genetic aspect uh, to where your weight setting is, so some people will you know, be you know, very sensitive to the Western food environment. And even if you try and eat healthily, it sort of still gets infused into, into us, particularly as we may discuss later, so-called healthy vegetable mm. oils, which actually are, you know, Oh, yes. Can't wait to talk about those. (laughs) One of the massive problems with the Western diet. Um, Mm. So some people are really sensitive to our Western diet and some people genetically are just immune to it. They can eat the Western diet. It Mm. sort of does explain to dieters, you know, why when they live with their flatmate, their flatmate can just eat takeaways and rubbish Mm. all the time and never put weight on. And I think that's really reassuring to people that, yeah, People are very different, and some people have to make a real effort if they want to sort of gain a healthier weight by being much more careful with with what they eat. And some people are just lucky, or maybe in the long term unlucky, because they're putting a lot of bad stuff in their bodies. Um, yes, sure, they'll pay pay later. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it interesting though that you know, leaving aside sort of the specifics, that the theory of having genes that that are controlling when we feel full um, and that they're stronger in some people perhaps than others. Yes. And, you know, there are some people, I mean, I, I can think of, you know, somebody who, you know, sort of, you know, nicknamed as, as having the greedy gene because he just always, he loves food. His, you know, he, his face lights up and changes, you know, as soon as he sees it. And he just, he doesn't have an off switch. He can't, can't switch off. Whereas the rest of us would, you know, sitting around a table with him in, in days gone by would be, you know, would feel full and, and would stop. But he just didn't or doesn't seem to have the, the, the capacity to stop. Reminds me of a patient who um, I was about to take his stomach out. He was severely obese, maybe 25 stone. Uh, young Australian man. Um, but I operated on him in Dubai. And he said, "Doctor, I think that I'm going to have the biggest stomach that you've ever <laughs> you've ever taken out." And he was just had such a voracious appetite that he describes having to go to um, to to, su- to two sushi restaurants because he was embarrassed by the number of plates that were built up in sort of yo sushi. No, He'd be embarrassed and have to leave and go to this and go to the next restaurant. So, uh, and when we took his stomach out, no. big actually. It does sound very, very extreme, you know. When when you say here, it does sound very extreme yeah. that you, when I took his stomach out. I mean, can we survive without a stomach? Well, it's it's, it's um, if you think about it from an evolutionary aspect, maybe it's adapting the human body to the current food environment. Um, so you're basically getting a. a we don't. Uh, the, the, the reason that we have a large stomach is that in you know prehistoric hunter-gatherer times we may not eat for several days and when we did eat we had to take in a a lot of food you know um so when we killed a big animal or 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 found you know some plantation that was ripe then we would have to fill our stomachs we don't need that when there's a costa coffee you know every 15 minutes up the high street so um yeah in a sort of cynical way it's almost yeah we don't need a big stomach anymore to survive as a as a sort of, as humans, whereas from an evil... Do you remove the whole thing or do you leave a little tiny bit then? So the 
The commonest operation is called the sleeve gastrectomy. So that makes the stomach into the size and shape of a sleeve. Um, so it's like a long tube. So it's about sort of two centimeters wide and about 10 centimeters. We, we, we describe it as um, going from the size and the shape of a melon to the size and the shape of a banana. So it sort of goes from two okay. liters to two, 300 cc. But as we mentioned before, it's not just the decreasing capacity of the stomach because you can eat a load of ice cream and chocolate and still get calories in. Um, that's not the main reason that it works. It works because it changes those switches in the hypothalamus in your brain by decreasing ghrelin and increasing these sort of satiety hormones. So let's talk then about calories in because this is a, a big part of your book. And I've written increasingly over the years about the, the myth of calorie counting and that all calories are not equal mm -hmm. and, that, and that food is, is not all just the, the number of calories that it contains and that our body reacts to it in, in different ways. What's your view as, as somebody who's dealt with obesity for, you know, for just so, so many years? What, 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 what are you saying here? What, what do you see? You, you mentioned right at the beginning that, that diets don't work and that actually the more you diet, the worse it is. Yeah, I mean, some people may get a little bit confused and say, well, that's just stupid. Because ultimately it is, you know, it's the first law of thermodynamics. So the amount of energy that you put into your body minus the amount of energy that your body uses equals the amount of energy stored. Uh, and if you put someone uh, into an experiment, into, into, a, you know, into a lab or a prison you know, and overfeed them, they will put on a load of weight. And if you starve them, they'll lose a load of weight. But we have a degree of free will, obviously. Um, and this is where, you know, our appetite and our metabolism, you know, is in this battle to try and maintain our weight set point. So, for instance, in the book, we look at evidence, I think, in the first chapter, actually, of the fact that Western populations are consuming 500 kilocalories more per day now than they did 25, 30 years ago, probably 30 years ago. Um, and when you look at, you know, the, the real... Um, straightforward calculations of one pound of weight, one pound of fat equated to 3,500 mm. kilocalories. So that would, if everyone's eating as a population 500 kilocalories a day more, then everyone should be putting on one pound of weight uh, per week more. And oh, week? Gosh. Week, so uh, 20, 25 kilograms a year. So three stone a year, three or four stone a year. Unless Every everyone's year. going to the gym a lot, you know, and actually doing a 10K run <laughs> five times a week. And I don't see that happening. So something's happening. We're all overeating. No. But we're not putting on as much weight as would be predicted. In fact, we're putting on as a as a population, I think, only about one pound per year. Obviously, that you know, we have an obesity crisis now because it's been going on for the last 30 years. Um, but it's not, you know... 50 pounds a year. Gosh, that's fascinating. So we're, we're not as fat as we could be. Yeah, so what happens is our bodies, it's, it's the opposite of when we go on a diet. So most people actually overeat and should be putting on a lot more weight than they are. But their body is increasing their metabolic rate. So this is the amount of energy you just you burn even before you move, it's sort of excluding movements. This mm. is what your body burns, which actually accounts for 70% of our energy expenditure. And uh, it can sort of adapt massively. It can adapt by you know, 700 kilocalories you know, per day, uh, which is a massive ad adaptation, which does 
account for this sort of lack of weight gain with the overeating of Western populations. It also accounts for, you know, mm. the, 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 the secondary effect of increasing uh, our metabolism is that we increase blood pressure, we increase you know, the heat of our bodies, our pulse rate. And this is actually why Western populations suffer with, well, in my opinion anyway, uh, hypertension and cardiac disease because they're sort of over-metabolizing to compensate for overeating. Now, if you then take that and say, well, does that explain why dieters don't lose as much weight as would be predicted? And again, yeah, that does explain it because if you take a dieter and you look at their metabolism and many studies on, you know, biggest, the biggest losers competitions on TV um, have looked at the metabolism after profound weight loss and seen that it, yeah, it just really, really shrinks. And this is, a, again, back to why two people of the same size the same weight, the same sex, the same age, you know, we think that their basal metabolism should be similar, but it can be massively different. So one person, you know, can eat a three course meal per day compared to the other and not struggle with their weight. Um, or the other person may go on a 10, 10K run a day and the other person not and just sit there, lay around in bed. And, uh, you know, they, the other person doesn't have to struggle as much. So. Um, there are profound changes in our metabolism that explain why we don't actually fluctuate in our weight much, as much as would be expected, both dieting and overeating. Mm. And that sort of explains this whole weight, point, weight set point theory, this, you know, our misunderstanding at the moment of, you know, how our metabolism can adapt to overeating or, or dieting to protect this sort of perceived, you know, healthy weight for us. You talk about metabolism and, and, and obviously a lot of people, when they think about metabolism, will naturally think about exercise and being able to speed up their, their metabolism and affect their metabolism through exercise. Is How important is exercise for um, those with obesity or for combating obesity? Because there seems to be a lot of focus, particularly by the food industry, of, oh, we just need to move more. And you know, But I've also heard other people say, you know, you, you can't run off what's on the table. Well, again, I mean, I think Coca-Cola have been saying this for, for many, many years that, um, yeah, it's um, it's your choice to take in this sort of fuel and um, you can run it off. And again, I mean, it's the first law of thermodynamics. Yeah, if you put someone into, you know, force them to, to run all day, they're going to lose a load of weight. But, um, you know, the profound things that influence our weight set point that can be changed are are of the type of food we eat, not the amount of calories. So this is the book, you know, specifies three areas that we can change. So the first is insulin. Uh, the second is cortisol, which is a stress hormone improved by exercise. And the third is our you know, polyunsaturated fatty acids. So omega-3 and omega-6, these, these fat vitamins. And these are the three things outlined in the book that if we change them, our weight setting will just come down if we change them for the, for the better it will come down naturally without any dieting um, so going back to exercise exercise actually works not particularly in the long term by you know flogging a load of calories off you because as we know you tend to refuel uh, usually in the juice bar after after a uh, after a workout exercise works by decreasing cortisol, so decreasing the amount of stress in your body and increasing the efficiency of insulin. Those two ways mean that if you do go to the gym a lot, 
no, that, that those hormonal profiles will be improved and your weight setting will just naturally come down. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I love the way that it's all coming back to our hormones. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, and if we look at sort of the Western diet and what that does to our insulin, I mean, this is it, it's very, very typical that you know the Western diet has a lot of food, so there are a lot of sugar and a lot of um, refined carbohydrates. So, again, the book goes into the history of why we ended up with this diet that we're recommended to by scientists, which is. A diet which actually is quite a high carbohydrate diet and we're supposed to have a lot of whole grains um, but in actual fact i don't think too many people have whole grains they have you know pseudo whole grain uh, bread with a few whole grains yeah. sprinkled in um, highly refined um, flour and um, yes so things like bread pasta even if it's brown bread and brown pasta are the same as sugar as far as the effect on your insulin level is concerned. And people who have average levels of insulin that are higher because of the Western diet and because of snacking all the time on things, so the sugar content is always high. So your insulin is always trying to like get the sugar sort of out of your bloodstream. If someone has a high insulin level, their, their, their weight will automatically sort of increase. And again, going back to the book, it's a little bit like if I treated you, Liz, with, with insulin, for conditioned diabetes or whatever, your weight setting would go up. You would, you know, put on 10 kilograms probably within within six months. You may try and fight that by going to the gym and going on a diet, but actually your body, because your body's getting all this insulin, would want to be 10 kilograms heavier. And you can do that yourself by not taking in the calories, but actually by having a high carbohydrate and sugar diet. And this is how it works. I mean, if you know very well, if you had all the sugar and carbohydrates that you may put on a stone or half a stone, but the misunderstanding yeah. is it's not to do with the 
the, the calories is to do with what the food is doing to your hormonal signaling is to do with that that insulin so which is why ketogenic diets work or low carbohydrate diets we know work really well again as a misunderstanding that's to do with calories it's to do with improving your sort of insulin profile and again the 5-2 or 16-8 diet they all improve insulin profile and these diets aren't going away so they obviously work I think it would be really good to just take a close look now at the types of food that we should be focusing on. And you've talked so much about the mechanics and the science and the hormonal responses and the way the body works and metabolism. You know, ultimately, practically, we all want to know what to eat and how to eat. And I'm really pleased that you've touched on a few of my favorite words um, being low carb ketogenic, um, inflammatory seed oils. Can we start to unpick a, a little bit of that? Because I think it, we are increasingly aware that it, it's the sugars that are the baddies here. Um, could you just clarify for us, you, you said something very interesting about the carbohydrates and you know, even if we're eating brown bread and wholemeal pasta and these sort of so-called healthy carbs, ultimately they just turn into sugar in the body. Is that right? I mean, is, is there any difference between eating a piece of brown bread or, or, a, or a potato and, and eating a spoonful of sugar? Um, I mean, the difference is the speed it goes into, into the bloodstream, but the effect on insulin is over the long term, you know, the same. Um, so my book sort of, outlines in the one one of the appendix is the glycemic load so we have diets which look at the glycemic index of food so the glycemic index is you know, the speed of the sugar going into into your bloodstream but i think it's much more useful to look at the glycemic load so the total amount of sugar in um in any type of food. And the index in the book looks at particularly an average size potato or an average portion of rice or whatever, and looks at the glycemic load. And one of the sort of instructions in the book, I and mean, I didn't want to write a diet book, but Penguin asked me to put another chapter in for some advice. <laughs> so it was like, you know, it would be too depressing otherwise. But um, I sort of thought about what would be the best thing to do. And I've seen a lot of people lose a lot of weight on the ketogenic diets, but they just put it back on because it's really, really difficult to maintain. Um, but if you go to a low carbohydrate diet, then you're going to improve your insulin sort of levels and it's going to be doable. So for instance, most people will take in about 300 grams of sugar in all sugar or carbohydrates, the same thing in all of the food per day. If we can get that down, you know, to 100 grams and then 80 and 60, um, that will automatically just improve our insulin you know, profile and our weight will just come down without, without just by changing the type of food we eat without any type of diet. Yes, and prevent diabetes, presumably type 2 diabetes. Yes, yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, and certainly, yeah. I mean, diabetes and obesity are sort of intrinsically linked. You know, the more insulin you... Mm. so the, the more sluggish the insulin which is a which is what happens with type 2 diabetes the more insulin you need and insulin blocks this other hormone we haven't mentioned yet leptin which acts on the brain to tell the brain how much fat we have so that's that signal is being blocked and you're sort of getting the opposite signals that you know your body doesn't know that actually you're clearly overweight or obese but 
you know, your body can't see that anymore because there's too much insulin blocking that signal. So, yeah, it's right. slightly complicated. So we want to unblock the leptin. We want to have more of the leptin and less of the ghrelin. Is that right? So, yeah, I mean, leptin is this, again, really, really interesting uh, concept that, I mean, it's sort of, it's, it's passed over a little bit in medical school and I asked sort of students and junior doctors, what do you remember about leptin? And they sort of don't really remember, but it's profoundly important to weight regulation. So, you know, normally um, every single fat cell will produce this hormone called, called leptin. And the more fat we have, so the heavier we are, the more obese we are, the higher that leptin signal in the bloodstream. And that goes to the hypothalamus, which, which reads it and will then adapt our metabolism and our appetite, you know, to say, okay, we've got a little bit too much energy, a little bit too much fat on board. Let's just switch up the, the metabolic engine a little bit and we can burn this fat back down to the set point. Or the opposite, you know, if you lose weight. So the signal of leptin is really important for our, for our body to understand, you know, how much weight we have on board. When we have too much insulin, i.e. via a Western diet, the insulin blocks that signal into the hypothalamus. Right. It has the same receptor in the hypothalamus as leptin. So leptin and and, um, and insulin share a sort of, once it gets into the hypothalamic cells, it shares a, a pathway. So if you've got too much leptin, sorry, if you've got too much insulin, the leptin signal is not going to get through. Yes. And the analogy in the book is a Don't little you. bit like if you're driving along the M1 in your car and uh, you see the petrol gauge has gone down to zero and you sort of panic and think, oh God, I've got to like pull into a petrol station and fill up. And you try and fill up and then you realize actually it's full already. The problem is that the, the gas meter, the petrol tank meter is broken. And this is what happens with people with leptin resistance. And you see these morbidly obese people really, really big and their body cannot you know, tell anymore that they've got six months worth of energy they can starve themselves for six months and they won't die they have this full fuel tank on board but they can't see it and in fact they're getting the opposite signals because that leptin signal is being blocked their body's actually getting signals that they're starving and this is why if you talk if you talk sort of intimately to people who are really struggling with severe obesity they will all binge eat they feel you know driven to binge eat in secret because they're embarrassed because they think it's their you know you know they think that they're weak-willed or they're addicted to food or whatever actually they've got severe leptin yeah. resistance and that's driving them you know with the same sort of you know powerful signals as a, as a parching thirst to binge eat every night so uh, once you uh, once wow. you understand leptin resistance you sort of understand why you know a low-carb diet suddenly the insulin is taken away and your body can see the signal. It can see, oh, yeah, actually, mm. too much fat on board. You know, we can see it. But the engine, the yeah. petrol tank is full. We don't have to keep on stopping off at the petrol station. Yeah. So is, is that the number one point, that we, we just need to cut back on the insulin-forming foods? We just need to get rid of the sugars and go low-carb, mm. and then we will be fixing this problem of, of weight gain and obesity. So that's one of the three points in the book that's outlined. Um, and it's very easy to just start that process by um, just giving up sugar, sweets, chocolates. And we, we all know this anyway, but this is why it works. It's not to do with the calories, it's to do with what it That's the science, yeah. 
Sorry, yeah, that, so that, that's the science. It's not just about calories. It's about this yeah. activity, our leptin meter, our hormones. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then we... That's, that, that's, that's very powerful. And once you start to understand it, then you can also make informed choices. And if you want to have your piece of dark chocolate or you want to have that piece of cake, then you, it's a judgment mm-hmm. call, isn't it? But it's just not something that you're stuffing your face with all the time and, and, and piling in breads and pastas and you know all those refined flours and sugars without without making a conscious decision to do so because you actively want it not because you think it's healthy or good for you in some way yeah i think it's um if you understand that by you know really really cutting down on sugar and refined carbohydrate and actually embracing much more natural foods and we can talk about saturated fat if you want at some stage um, I so want to. I'm saving the best till last yeah, here. <laughs> yeah, if we understand it, actually, that's just going to improve our insulin profiles and decrease our weight setting, and weight is just going to fall off us. Um, I think, you know, if we understand the amount of sugar in various different foods as well, we can sort of say, okay, um, I'm going to have a load of these green vegetables. I mean, it's all common sense. We, we know it works, but this book explains why it works. It's not to yeah. do with the calories. Carries has been a massive smokescreen for many, many years. Very interesting. Well, talking about smokescreens, I guess that does lead us perhaps neatly on to talk about saturated fats and seed oils. And my very first book, actually, which was published 30 years ago this year, was called Vital Oils. And it was all about fats and oils. And obviously, I knew very, very little back then. And I was writing at a time of low fat, no fat, you know, was the mantra, a lot of processed trans fats, um, a lot of production of highly processed hydrogenated hydrogenated um, polyunsaturated sunflower oils and, and all that kind of thing and butter was banned and um, and I just felt that that was what was wrong and even though I didn't have um, a, a, a strong academic background that the number of researchers and people I was talking to at the time was really highlighting this as as being wrong and I'm now seeing so much more conversation around what are being called inflammatory seed oils now what's what's your take on all of this you can can you give us the the real well, I'm, I'm very similar to you liz we're probably well i think you're a bit younger than me but we're, we're probably in the flora gen- generation this sort of you know oh yes uh, margarine that you know was replaced by wonderful mm. slightly salted uh, butter uh, because butter was going to kill us. This is what we were told. Um, so I sort of became intrigued by the history of why, you know, our food scientists um, changed, you know, the recommendation to eat, you know, saturated fat and basically onto carbohydrates, which caused the which caused the obesity crisis. And if you look at it, and this is again explained in the, the part two of the book, which looks at the history of food, um, but I think in quite an interesting way, um, there was a, a big debate in the 1960s between Ansel Keys, who was a very charismatic American scientist, um, and John Yudkin, who was a, um, a slightly less charismatic English um, guy. Yudkin produced a book which basically said that sugar in our diets, this was in the 1960s, was causing you know, heart disease and lots of different diseases. Ansel Keys had done a sabbatical in, in the UK, I think in Cambridge for a year, and had seen 
you know, the way we eat fish and chips and, you know, uh, Sunday roast and lots of oils and things. And his thesis was actually it's the cholesterol in saturated fat that's causing heart disease. So they had a big debate actually for many, many years. Um, and in the end, the sort of debate was, you know, won convincingly by Ansel Keys, who came out with this, you know, really um, seminal study uh, called the Seven, Seven Countries Study, which basically looked at the amount of saturated fat of cholesterol that various different countries uh, consumed and plotted it against, you know, the amount of heart disease that that country had. And there was this fantastic correlation, absolutely perfect. And this sort of ended the debate. It was like the food scientists were scared. It was like, okay, well, we better, we better tell the food industry, you know, that you're killing the population because there's too much saturated fat in, in, in the food. Um, subsequently, many, many years later, after the damage had been done and we had you know, been told saturated fat was going to kill us, this study was found to be flawed because actually Ansel Keys went to 27 countries and not seven. And if you look at the actual <gasps> of 27 countries, it's just totally random. And he just picked the seven that co collaborated. The seven that matched. So That's like, appalling. It was. <laughs> Did he really do that? Yes. I mean, that is yeah. clinical this, fraud on a massive scale. Yeah, uh, which, I mean, in the old days, you were, you were sort of allowed to just exclude things or, or just not publish a study. It's only been in the last... I mean, I do know that, that a lot of, you know, dodgy dealings goes on in medicine and, and studies and, and, you know, deciding what results to publish and what not publish. And, you know, I have to say, since, you know, writing for my magazine and looking at various numerous flawed studies that have gone on around the, the globe, it is terrifying how simple it is to manipulate yeah. data. I mean, this data was... To change public opinion. And that, those sort of scientists were were funded by the sugar industry so they were they were paid by the sugar industry there was another you know, seminal review article which was published in two parts oh. in a, a really high impact um journal i think in the in at around about 1980 which you know hammered the point that you know saturated fat was terrible and basically they again cherry-picked various different studies that collaborated with what, how they thought and they were paid but again in those days they didn't have to disclose who was paying them for this information now so the the, the scientists were in and the food industry actually was in a bit of a dilemma so basically the food industry and the scientists uh the scientists told us to eat more grains which is why we have more carbohydrates which might why the population became fat but we had a problem in that you know food that had saturated fat taken away just didn't taste so good so they had to sort of replace mm. it so they eventually replaced it with all of these sort of seeds that would have been thrown away or used for animal feed so cotton seed uh, canola seed um, uh, various different seeds that they were able to refine like a crude oil the the, 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 the amount of you know processing that is, the, the, these oils take to produce um, is is terrifying uh and they produce this sort of perfect human food uh which actually is pro-inflammatory as you've uh, as you found out many many years ago liz but also i think yeah. you know the, the book looks at you know in detail at what the seed oils which have a lot of omega-6 
do to our bodies as far as not only inflammation but you know again going back to insulin signaling so if you have a diet that's infused with vegetable oils and the western diet is because you know it's not just fast food from mcdonald's that's got a lot of vegetable oils it's fried in but actually most processed foods have got vegetable oils in there because it's very very stable it doesn't go off anything in a jar will have a lot of vegetable oil in there um, <clears throat> And these type of oil. So, are we looking at things like palm oil, for example? And I mean, what 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 are the ones that we should be really looking out for on the on actually the, palm the oil is, is is a saturated fat list. So, palm oil is the only saturated fat that I would say is particularly dangerous. It's been shown in many experiments. It's a bit of an artificial saturated fat. It shouldn't really be in the, the human food food chain. But it's been again sort of manipulated. Um, and it find, finds its way in cakes and biscuits because you know it's so easy to use apparently the the, the consistency of it is easy to to use in baking yes so palm oil and palm oil unfortunately because it has infused into the western diet is used by the opponents of saturated fat um to say yeah actually saturated fat does cause heart disease it's not it's not natural saturated fats like in your beef joint or or, or whatever or in your butter yeah. or dairy yeah. that causes heart disease it's actually the palm oil in in so there's again there's a lot of you know um a lot of you know the real truth is obscured by by oh yes obfuscation and the muddying of information and misinformation and you know the the food industries like big, any big global giant where there are huge amounts at stake you know we're talking billions if not trillions you know there is massive vested interest, isn't there? And I'm I'm always shocked at the manipulation of of data. That's really good to know about that about palm oil. But looking at the seed oils, the ones that we should avoid are, are what things like sunflower seed. So basically, the book looks at these two. So the seed oils are polyunsaturated fatty acids, and these are and there is two particular types that we've heard of: omega three and omega six which we can't produce in our bodies. So they're like fat vitamins. We have to take them in from our diet, otherwise we'll get ill. Um, omega-6 is the thing in seed oils, um, and it should be in a sort of ratio to omega-3 of either one to one or one to four. Uh, so historically, that's the sort of ratio that we would take in. Omega-3 is in fresh foods and green vegetables um, and in algae, and things that eat green vegetables and algae like cattle and fish. So that has a lot of you know omega-3 in it, which is why we always say that fish is great for us. Um, but unfortunately, the omega-6 in seed oils just totally sort of obscures uh, and dilutes down any omega-3. Even if we have omega-3 supplements, the amount in our you know, vegetable oils and processed foods totally sort of um, drowns it out. And on a really? cellular if you have a lot, a high ratio of omega-6, it does cause inflammation, Western diseases, and uh, sort of inflammatory Western diseases, and also um, sort of interferes with insulin signal, which ultimately leads to higher insulin levels and obesity. So again, this is why the Western diet, not just sugar and refined carbohydrates, but also infused with seed oils, all cause obesity, not, not to do with the yes. um, calories. 
That is so fascinating, isn't it? And I'm I'm such a believer in getting back to natural foods. I'm, I mean, I, I cook with lard and dripping because it's very stable. I use a lot of olive oil. I'm a massive fan of butter. And a lot of the things I've been writing about more recently are things like gut health and actually yep. looking at the role of butyrate in butter mm -hmm. is, is really fascinating and about yep. how it's strengthening the, the very fine epithelial cell. These are natural foods. These are natural foods that have been around for hundreds of years before we had an obesity yeah. crisis. Only the new foods, you know, the refined carbohydrates and the vegetable yeah. oils that, you know, we're not used to them as humans and it causes... No. major problems but, but, but alas you know very little money to be made out of selling us blocks of lard or, or even you know butter or or straightforward things like eggs and I, I did a podcast not that long ago actually there was a study that was released that said um, that two eggs a day were, were leading to diabetes and I, I thought that how can that be that's just that's just ludicrous nonsense so I got in touch with some leading academics on on the subject and we did a really interesting podcast about it and they unpicked the data and it turned Turned out that it was it was to do with women living in rural China, and actually, when you examined the data and you made all the allowances for all the variations, actually, it wasn't the eggs; it was the number of cakes and biscuits that these women were eating. Yeah, I mean, but, it was, but, it was but there's so many of these, you know. That, that, that didn't make the headline. What made the headline for you know the tabloid newspapers was you know don't eat eggs because it'll give you diabetes, and yes. you can bet somewhere that there will be some PR agency or somebody at work who will have spun that story into the media. Just yeah, exactly. And this is why goes, oh, never mind, I'm not going to have an egg. I'm just going to have a bowl of breakfast cereal or, or a packet yeah, of eggs like, because eggs are It's sort of like, oh, I, I thought it gave you heart disease. Oh, no, it's actually diabetes now, but actually it's neither. But the, the perception <laughs> is that, you know, saturated fat, most people and most doctors still say saturated fat increases your cholesterol and, you know, causes a big risk of you, you know, killing over with a, with a heart attack any, at, at any moment in, in the future. But again, when you look at the research, it just doesn't, it doesn't pan out. And it's, it, it's terrible yeah. dietary advice. And that is it for today's episode. Huge thanks to Dr. Jenkinson and his book, which I have to say is completely brilliant. So interesting. And it's a really enjoyable, good read. It is called Why We Eat in brackets, too much, the new science of appetite. And it's all about help for understanding why we have been struggling with diets and they simply don't work. It is a really, really good read. I cannot recommend it highly enough. And as always, you will find a lot more information over on lizardwellbeing.com. And there you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter, it's filled with healthy, balanced recipes, including lots with lovely, good quality fats and more tips for living well. Well, huge thanks to all of you who have left us such lovely reviews. It's a pleasure to read. Thank you so much. It really does help others to find the show, which I am so excited about as we spread more good news. So if you are able to leave us a quick review, essentially iTunes is the place to go to leave comments and reviews. And if you can click those little five-star rating buttons at the end of this podcast, that would be hugely appreciated by both my team and me. So until the next time we chat, go well. Bye-bye.
The Liz Earle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Liz Earle, with production by Amaryllis Earle and Harry Trevithick at Heart Dialogue, with thanks to my producer, Ellie Smith, and guest booker, Millie de la Morinière. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.